Hello, my name is Julia Streets and welcome to Diversity Podcast, talking about equality, inclusion and diversity in financial services. On the podcast, we seek to shine a light on positive progress, call out areas requiring further focus and offer lots of ideas to help drive change. And today, I'm delighted to be joined by Fulke Abimbola and Alison Choi. More than being an award-winning solicitor and business leader, Funke Abimbola is also widely recognised as a diversity campaigner and has been acknowledged for her inspiring leadership in both full-time and voluntary C-suite roles. In 2017, Funke was awarded the MBE for Services to Diversity in the Legal Profession and also to Young People, and the FT ranked Funke one of their top 15 minority ethnic leaders across the UK, US, Ireland and Canada. And if that's not enough, the Prime Minister awarded her a point of light status in 2016, recognising the positive impact of her voluntary diversity leadership. Currently taking a pause from her career journey, Funke is completing a gender diversity postgrad programme at the INSEAD Business School before continuing with her next chapter. We're very fortunate to have caught you. Funke, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Pleasure. And joining Funke today is Alison Choi, who is a developer at Starling. She came to coding through chemistry, took on a PhD in chem informatics and had to teach herself to code, which she did through YouTube videos. At the age of 14, Alison taught herself English and moved on her own from Hong Kong to the UK. She went on to study natural sciences at the University of Cambridge, focusing, as I mentioned, on chemistry for her undergraduate, continuing those studies into a master's level before embarking on this PhD, which she completed in 2018, also while working at Starling. Just as the puzzles of science drew her to chemistry, the puzzles of technology had drawn her to coding. When Alison joined the bank in 2018, she worked at the marketplace, which she describes as the app store for third-party services. And this means that customers have access to the most innovative products on the market. She is also deeply passionate about tapping into pools of less recognised talent by encouraging young engineers into the financial services industry. Alison, it's wonderful to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And as always, at the start of each show, we invite each guest to talk about what they're up to at the moment. So Finke, let me start with you. What on earth are you up to at the moment? So I've just finished this uh, wonderful programme at INSEAD Business School, which has really helped me to have a much more structured focus uh, around diversity generally, you know, with the data at my fingertips, specific action plans and so on. Uh, and I'll be continuing with my career very much with that in mind going forward. And, and how long was that, was that course? A few months, mm-hmm. uh, very, very practical, very hands-on. I, I was given the opportunity to work uh, with other senior leaders and study with them from many, many different industries. And I found it a real eye-opener, actually, just really realising some of the challenges that they might be facing, which are very, very different to a lot of the challenges I've seen in the solicitor's profession where I focus uh, my diversity work. Fabulous. And there's so much in that that we're going to talk about on the, on the show today. But I'm very keen to uh, to look beyond the world of financial services and hear your views about the legal profession and, and what we've learned there, but also calling on uh, your studies at INSEAD as well and, and some of your thoughts on that. So, yes. so exciting to have you here. Thank you. Thank and Alison, what, what are you up to at the moment? I mean, busy life. I mean, what's your focus? Um, so, yeah, I came to the financial services um, from academia. So my PhD actually involved um, using machine learning algorithms to predict how the human body absorbs drugs. 
So now I'm using that in my job. I work at the intersection between data engineering and data science at Starling Bank. So Starling is, as you mentioned, a, a challenger bank. It's mobile only, and we've got over 400,000 customers. And the app itself is basically, you can do all your banking on the app in your on your phone. And it has smart money management tools built in. And basically, banks hold a lot of customers' data. Uh, we have information on where you live, what, what money you've spent and where. And Starling strongly believe that data belongs to the customers. And wouldn't it be great if we can build something that offers meaningful and timely financial insights when customers need it before they even realize they need it? So right now I'm using my skills in software engineering and also machine learning, that uh, the machine learning area to um, lay the groundwork to enable the bank to build a tool such as that or others. And of course, there's so much discussion about you know artificial intelligence, data, data scientists, and then then also how do how do we corral, manage, uh, secure, and also extract value from data as well. So that's a fa- fascinating job and a very interesting time in the industry as well. So fabulous. Again, we'll we'll come back to much of that. I'm I'm, I'm sure. And I love the fact that you learned to code using YouTube as well, which is which is amazing. Okay, let me come back to you about, um, as I mentioned about uh, exploring development in the legal profession. And, and I'm really keen to, to understand partly your role in driving change and also the change that you've seen as well. Can you talk to us a bit about that? Yes. Yeah, so I started really focusing on the uh, inequalities that we're seeing within the solicitor's profession uh, probably about 10 years ago now because of some of the experiences I'd had, you know, as being a, uh, a black woman, I, I certainly faced challenges entering the profession, getting my first job. And I had to make over 150 phone calls just to get um, my first job. And then there was another challenge when I had my son and returned to work after maternity leave. So I thought, gosh, this isn't quite right. You you know, you, you feel as if you've done everything right, you've worked hard, you know, I'd gotten really good grades, gone to a fantastic law school, you know, and I just thought something isn't quite right here. And it was really that that anger. You know, I remember when my son was still very, very young, just being really angry all the time about uh, why, you know, why I was being shoved into certain choices. And just even continuing my career uh, was a challenge after he was born. And then it was only later that I realised how bad the statistics actually were uh, within solicitor's profession and how, for example, and this really surprises a lot of people, women actually outnumber men at entry level quite quite significantly. You know, if you look at the numbers of women actively studying to become a lawyer uh, or, or training, it's about 60% compared to 40% male. And then you fast forward about 10 years and only about 20% of those women become partners. It's a massive attrition uh, in between and, and such a loss of talent. You know, firms invest huge amounts of money uh, in training their solicitors. And then these women drop out. And, and I, I was very interested to know what the reasons were and what I could do to, to change that. Really. And where did you begin? I mean, it's such a huge uh, challenge in that regard. It really is. It started just talking to, to a lot of women and talking to a lot of the male solicitors also, because I realised very quickly that, 
you know, we're now in a sort of generation where both parents are working, you know, both are professionals. And one of the most illuminating conversations I had was actually with a very young male solicitor who was so worried about asking to, to work more flexibly because his wife was a surgeon and he was the one who needed to leave on time to pick up um, the daughter from, from nursery. And he actually pretended he wanted to become a partner at the firm for many, many years because he just couldn't face the stigma that went with a male solicitor not wanting to become a partner, which was a quite an interesting twist on the whole thing. So I realised that I needed to get the guys involved as well. And that was what really drove the change for me, partnering and really listening to the young men. I think being the mother of a young man myself, I was very curious to know what challenges uh, is, is that generation actually going to face going forwards. And, and structurally, was that a kind of once a month network meeting or how, how did you sort of um, imbue that in daily behaviour as well? Very good question. Um, I was training supervisor very early on in my career at various firms. So I started off talking to the trainees um, and finding out more about them, their backgrounds and what challenges they had faced, which in itself was was illuminating. And it just developed from there into more structured uh, networks and and snowballed into what I do now. And, and when, you, when you talk about uh, uh, the other diversity as well, one of the things we're always very keen to talk about on, on the show is about reaching out into other groups as well, uh, You know, whether that's LGBT. Yes. or disability, et cetera. Is, is that, does that fall under that remit? Massive, remittance? massive piece. So I'm an LGBT ally. Mm-hmm. You know, a friend of mine runs a very prominent LGBT network within the profession. I, I help him a lot with that profile raising because again, as a black woman, there, there's so many issues even within the black community if you're LGBT. So again, it's very important that I'm seen to be doing that kind of work. But the visibility piece is so, so, so crucial in all of this. Having that visible representation is very important for young people in particular. I do a lot of work uh, with young people who need those visible role models um, to follow, you know, really key for and them. And when you were working with the Law Society, uh, we, we talk a lot, particularly in financial services, about working with some of the industry bodies as well. And, and we are seeing that actually there is a greater uh, appreciation. I, mean, I think about the keynote speeches that I do now as mostly by uh, invited by advisory boards of industry bodies. Was, was there a degree of you going to them and saying you should be talking about that or were they thinking about it anyway? How, how did that those two uh, waves combine? It was a bit of both, I would say. I mean, certainly the Law Society until about maybe five or six years ago, we're, we're slowly realising that this was a really important issue for many, many reasons that, you know, this, this uh, solicitor's profession needed to be more representative of the society that we serve. It's the largest arm of the the legal profession by far. And and that sort of coincided with a number of precedents who, who were very passionate about diversity and inclusion. Often the precedent just sets the agenda for that year. And it's built up since then. So we have many, many many divisions now. There's ethnic minorities, there's women in law, there's the disabilities, LGBT, social mobility. You know, we have a whole network of social mobility champions. Uh, Every year we have another 10 ambassadors who are appointed, uh, you know, sort of across England and Wales to champion that specific cause. And huge amounts of resource have now gone into this with massive commitment from the firm's um, themselves. It's, be, it's been wonderful to see the change. Fabulous. It is, it is really interesting to hear you talk about this from a, from a different pr- profession from financial services because uh, there are so many things that are very common there and, uh, and think about the, the ways and the initiatives and how to harness uh, almost kind of a, a momentum, if you want to call it that. Um, 
Alison, let me come to you because, you know, relatively speaking, you're you're quite early in your career in financial services, not, not early in your life journey, but certainly early in your career in financial services as well, in the world of fintech, let's call it. Um, so what, what, I mean, you had so many choices at your disposal when you think about your chemistry uh, background and your PhD. What, what attracted you to financial services? Yeah, I never thought um, I would end up where I am. Um, and I didn't set out specifically to go find a job in the financial services or fintech. Um, I, but I know for me, I wanted to work on something that's intellectually challenging. And I want to work with a bunch of nice, interesting people from very diverse background, which drove me to find a job in London because this city is amazing and it's so culturally diverse. We've got people from all over the world and I really wanted to be here. And yeah, so I ended up, um, I wanted to continue um, doing software development. So I actually had a job as a software engineer first. And then, yeah, through my network and friends, I heard about Starling and I realized I miss doing something that actually makes a positive impact on someone else's life, which is why I ended up at Starling. And, and did you, were you talking to other institutions as well or, or was it just that it was a singular going, that's exactly what I want to be doing? That is the perfect storm of everything that inspires me. Yeah, it was pretty much that. And <laughs> I've completely put words in your mouth, by the way. You know that, do you? <laughs> Especially because, yeah, and our CEO is a woman in the tech industry and financial services, which is just incredibly inspiring. And this is Anne Bowden. Anne Bowden, yeah. yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I found that because of, the lack of role model, particularly um, in the fintech world, most people are white men from a very similar social economical background. It's quite refreshing to see someone very different. And, and did that um, surprise you when you first joined? Are there any other things that sort of surprised you when you when you came into the industry and thought I was expecting something a little different, perhaps? Yeah, when I first moved to the city and started my first job here, it was quite surprising because. I thought, you know, what? walking around London, looking around, there are a mixture of people and it's fantastic. But when I went and had my first job, it was quite a homogenous background. Um, everyone was a white man from a select number of universities. I was, yeah, I couldn't find a relatable role model. And that was quite surprising. And and do you feel, I mean, I, I appreciate you only started in 2018, but do, do you feel that there is, that the world is changing? Obviously, starting as, for all the reasons you've explained, uh, particularly with Anne at, at the helm, is um, it's probably a positive example of leadership and change and cultural change. But as you look at the at the institutions, do you feel that there's a there's an appetite for change? I think there are lots of companies who generally want to make the change because I think lots of research have already shown that when you have a diverse workforce, people think differently. And I mean, you've solved one problem with a particular set of people. It doesn't mean that the next problem that comes along is exactly the same. And if you have people from different backgrounds who can think differently, you're more likely to be a successful organization. But there are also probably other organizations who are perhaps not seeing the benefits right now who may just be doing that for marketing purposes. And it is fascinating, isn't it? Because I think this real time of change where as consumers, we're so much more digitally enabled and digitally savvy and demanding. 
actually. And we need our financial institutions to be able to deliver products in a, in a smarter way. And, and that requires um, an, an appreciation of the dynamics of your customers. I mean, Funke, you mentioned that as well, which is you know, the people you're serving are not all uh, you know, white men of a particular ec- socioeconomic background uh, and with a particular education behind them. You know, they kind of what they work and they think and they behave in very different ways as well. And, and I mentioned in my introduction, Alison, you're, you're very committed and very passionate about reaching into some of the um, diversity pools, if you like, of potential talent to come into the industry. Talk to us a bit more about that. Um, so, yeah, I recently uh, spoke at a school um, to a bunch of young apprentices and sixth form students who surprisingly is fantastic because it's a technology school. So these people have chosen to, you know, learn about technology and hopefully get into the technology industry. And it's actually lovely to see a real mixture of different races, different genders, and they were very keen to get involved. Um, And I want to do more of that because I think, yeah, there are only 17% women in the technology sector and only actually about seven percent of students studying computer science at school are women and girls we need we need to be able to raise those numbers because i don't know whether it's a lack of role model of relatable role models in the tech industry whether that makes a difference but i think yeah i don't see any reason why a woman or or man can't be as good at typing on a computer as each other if they have the right mindset. So I think it's a lot about giving people the confidence to try something different if they want to do that. And you know, and I talk about this all the time, which is it's actually about uh, a commercial imperative. I was saying about, you know, kind of working in digitally enabled times where you need to have diversity around a problem and a and a challenge and an opportunity to build something new in order to make it as effective as possible. Uh, but And those firms that can do that actually will get a comparative advantage for, from, from others that don't. Um, and I and I wonder when you look at it, and I want to bring you in here as well, when, you, when you're thinking about the work with the Law Society about bringing young, fresh talent into the industry. And we've touched a little about kind of if you, if you can... I mean, essentially, if you can see it, you can be it. So therefore, you know, role models and and inspiring champions and allies really matter. Um, the sentiment of change of bringing young talent into uh, into professions, they walk through it, so they come out of an academic institution hearing everybody commits to either they're changing their diversity and inclusion or they have been changing their diversity and inclusion. Uh, And then they walk into organizations and how does that feel when they walk in as well? And I'm very interested in your thoughts around culture and environmental uh, considerations as well. Fuka, let me start with you. So talking about culture, that, that's a really, really pertinent point because uh, when I do my work with young people, it essentially is going into schools and speaking to large uh, year groups about my personal journey, tips for success, and then answering you know questions. Um, and some are brave enough to ask me questions publicly and others sort of wait uh, to have a private word. But often it's that sense of feeling that, will they belong? You know, they don't all want to be solicitors, of course. But they, they worry about, you know, whatever career choice that they're, they're thinking about that point in time, will they be accepted? Will they belong? And this a wide range of children I speak to, thousands every year. I mean, last year it was almost 2,000 school children. And it's just made me realise that 
you can't start too early, actually, exposing young people to the, the, the culture in the workplace. I do a lot of work in matching, you know, work experience and shadowing and, and all of that, because a lot of young people have never been to the city before. You know, last summer, for example, I, I took five, five of my summer placement students into a law firm. Uh, I thought, oh, I'll just come along. I'm giving a talk. And three out of the five said they'd never been into the city before. And they don't live too far away from the city. And they were overwhelmed by it all. You know, the, the view, the building, the lift, everything was just this amazing experience. And I thought, my goodness me, you know, we cannot make any assumptions. Uh, and if you're not familiar with that, you then feel intimidated as if you don't belong and so on. So the culture is key. Really, really important. Alison, is that your experience as well? I mean, as, as, as a chemist who came into the square mile, you know, uh, and, and what, what, do you th- what do you see? Yeah, so I think the culture absolutely is so important because you spend a lot of hours that you're awake working, right? You want to be somewhere where you're comfortable and you feel like you can contribute where they can bring out the best of you because that's more productive for you and the company that are employing you. And I think particularly when you have a homogenous mixture of people, is, I mean, everyone is different, and but you can also relate to people who are different to you but when they're so far removed from what you've experienced in life it's much harder to kind of find the common ground to have a conversation to fit in. So let's take a moment there to turn to Robert and to Cynthia for some research to support today's discussion. According to the research from Access HE, an organisation that aims to support the progression of underrepresented groups to higher education, by the end of the next decade, almost three quarters of London students who enter university will be from ethnic minorities, and more than half of the students from the capital will also be the first in their family to go to university. Tech is expanding almost three times faster than the rest of the UK economy, according to Tech Nation's 2018 report. The digital tech sector is worth nearly £184 billion to the UK economy, up from £170 billion in 2016. Figures in the report also show that there are more black, Asian and ethnic minority workers employed in tech, 15%, than the 10% working across the UK in general. So thank you, Cynthia and Robert. And links to the research can be found on our website, www.diversitypodcast.com, where you can find all our episodes and sign up for early notifications of future recordings. Please do follow us on Twitter at DiversityPod. And remember, that's diversity with a C, not with an S, DiversityPod. And Diversity Podcast is available on Bright Talk, Spotify, and all good podcast channels and we'd love a rating it all helps to promote the show so it's really interesting we were talking there about uh role models and uh i i wonder about yeah obviously if you could see it you can be it the representation in the industry as well uh but do we see enough diversity in uh, in the media and in some of the marketing uh, in the industry today yeah so the media representation of software engineers quite typically a bunch of white male nerds who you know have no social skills and often bad hairstyle but <laughs> you know in in actually from the second world war to 1960s the software engineering profession was considered clerical work so it was mainly women who held the posts but a very interesting um marketing campaign came out in the 80s which is when personal computers and game consoles came into the market 
that campaign was aimed at boys. And from then on, you saw we saw a very drastic shift in the number of men and women in the industry. And I mean, if marketing and media can have such a powerful impact, why can't we do something good with it? Yes. And it's interesting you say that because I think to me when I, and again, this isn't based on any evidence, it's just a feeling that when it comes to marketing campaigns and media campaigns, we're kind of ticking a few boxes, which is, you know, have have more women represented in pictures, but are we seeing the, the ethnic representation that we should be? And I think we still, we have to, we have to talk about race. And it's fascinating having you both here. You know, Alison, you were talking about your journey from, from Hong Kong to the UK and, and being a very senior black solicitor in the industry as well. Um, tell us about your thoughts on race. Yes, I, I, I see race very much as the elephant in the room. It, it's such a sensitive subject. And to, to sort of bundle, you know, anyone of colour, uh, which is a very loose term in itself, into this minority ethnic box is oversimplifying what's actually an incredibly complicated uh, issue. Uh, I feel hugely encouraged by the the level of discussions we're having around race. I've seen a lot of investment uh, in race initiatives and, and starting with those really honest, open discussions. But I feel slightly guarded that we're still at the very beginning of, of what will be a long journey uh, to get to a much better place of understanding around the intricacies of, of true racial representation. And in, is there anything we can do is there anything we can do to accelerate that discussion, the, the pace of change? It's having very strong commitment from leadership, authentic commitment from leadership. So where I've seen this done really well, it's where you've had the CEO of the organization, for example, uh, in a reverse mentoring relationship with, you know, in one law firm's case, it was a, an Afro-Caribbean trainee solicitor decided to, you know, be mentored by and also reverse mentor uh, the senior partner at the firm. And they then shared that that relationship and how illuminating it was. And there was a lot of educating on both sides, which, you know, it's all about understanding. It really is a sense of truly beginning to understand what it's like to be in that other person's shoes and, and to build on that and to stand up for those who aren't in a position to stand up for themselves. And, and Alison, as you as you sit here in the square mile, you know you're having made them move uh, into uh, into the wonderful, weird and wonderful world that is financial services and fintech. Is I mean, are you optimistic, or do you think we have a long way to go? Yeah, it's it's quite interesting because I actually think we need to talk more about race and talking about, for example, white privilege to white people can be difficult. But I am also very optimistic because we've all heard about women in tech events. But, you know, even though at the moment the racial representation may not be there yet, I think the fact that we're having these conversations, like highlighting areas that, you know, other people may not benefit as much as um, the generic white man. Um, we also, yeah, we need to be optimistic that conversations about race or age or religion or um, any kind of disability will also happen. I completely agree. And it is, I know, it's, maybe that's one of the roles that we can fulfill, just keep the discussion about race going. And uh, it's been wonderful today. Thank you both so much for joining us, Alison and Funke. Thank, thank you. you. Thank, thank you, you very much. This episode of Diversity Podcast was produced by me, Kieran Yates, on behalf of Julia Streets Productions. Thanks to Cynthia Akinsanya and Roy Pinto Fernandez for their insights. You can find out more about the guests on this week's show on our website, 
diversitypodcast.com and that's diversity with a C, not an S. Whilst you're there, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all our latest updates. To be sure of catching all our future podcasts, subscribe to our feed in iTunes or your favourite podcast app. And if you've enjoyed this episode of Diversity Podcast, remember to give us a rating or review. It all helps promote the show to a wider audience. Finally, our Twitter handle is at DiversityPod. Thanks for listening.